Why is success so difficult to sustain? This was, and still is, an important question, because when you look across the sweep of business history, most companies that once seemed successful, the best practitioners of best practice, were in the middle of the pack, or worse, the back of it, a decade or two later. And we discovered something unsettling and counterintuitive. What often causes this lagging behind are two principles of good management taught in business schools, that you should always listen to and respond to the needs of your best customers, and that you should focus investments on those innovations that promise the highest returns. But these two principles, in practice, actually sow the seeds of every successful company's ultimate demise. That's why we call it the innovator's dilemma. Doing the right thing is the wrong thing. That is from Clayton Christensen's influential book, The Innovator's Dilemma. This book, first published in 1997, has had a profound impact on the way we think about innovation and disruption in the business world. We're going to be discussing today what disruptive innovation is, how existing incumbents suffer from what he calls the innovator's dilemma when faced with it, and what steps these companies can take to prevent it. I'll share many useful examples from both the book across the disk drive industry, steel, retailing, and accounting, and we'll add some of the modern-day tech businesses that we've seen suffer from the innovator's dilemma over the last couple decades. The innovator's dilemma is a powerful framework when thinking about new markets and competition, especially in this internet age when pace of progress is increasingly faster than ever before. So buckle up and we're going to jump right in. So we can start off by identifying what's the difference between a sustaining technology, which typically don't spell the downfall of these incumbent businesses, and a disruptive technology. So Christensen writes, what all sustaining technologies have in common is that they improve the performance of established products along the dimensions of performance that mainstream customers in major markets have historically valued. Generally, disruptive technologies underperform established products in mainstream markets, but they have other features that a few fringe and generally new customers value. Products based on disruptive technologies are typically cheaper, simpler, smaller, and frequently more convenient to use. So he's setting this framework in the beginning. Disruptive technologies, it is not an advancement that the general mainstream customers of the core business need right now. It is typically worse than the current technology, but it may be simpler, it may be cheaper, it may be more convenient, and there's a niche market that it will fit for. So when he was first trying to figure out why do these big companies, these incumbents, fall to disruptive technologies but not sustaining technologies, he developed what he called the technology mudslide hypothesis. My investigation into why leading firms found it so difficult to stay atop the disk drive industry led me to develop the technology mudslide hypothesis. 
Coping with the relentless onslaught of technological change was akin to trying to climb a mudslide raging down a hill. You have to scramble with everything you've got to stay on top of it. And if you ever once stop to catch your breath, you get buried. What's interesting is that after developing this hypothesis, he realized the mudslide hypothesis was wrong. So the initial hypothesis was basically that companies just, there keeps being new innovations and they can't keep up on that innovation product curve that eventually they fall behind. It's too much R&D. But he realizes that's not really the case, especially with these disruptive technologies that are cheaper to build and are worse at first. It must be something else that is causing them to fall behind. And he started over time as he studied the disk drive industry. We're going to use that as a main example as we understand the factors motivating this innovator's dilemma. But he started realizing a big reason why these disruptive technologies cause companies to fall behind is with the shift to new product waves, like from the mini computer to desktop PC or from the desktop PC to the laptop PC. And we'll see in the disk drive industry how these smaller disk drives over time, the disruptive technology was a smaller disk drive. They couldn't compete on capacity, for example. They were smaller, so they couldn't store as much megabytes of information. But you needed a smaller disk drive for, let's say, a laptop versus a desktop PC. So let's use Seagate as the first example from the disk drive industry of how this disruptive innovation takes hold of a company and ends up toppling the company. Seagate, at the time, was a leader in the 5.25-inch disk drive, which was the core disk drive for desktop PCs. And the new innovation, as they were leading the desk drive PCs, the new innovation was 3.5-inch disk drive models. This was in 1985. So Seagate was one of the first companies, they developed one of the first 3.5-inch models, and a big problem was they went out to their existing customer base, all their existing customers are these companies that are producing desktop PCs, and they showed them the 3.5-inch model with lower capacity, higher cost per megabyte, so it's a lower overall cost, but it's a higher cost per megabyte because there's less megabytes, there's less storage. And unfortunately, they got little customer reception. And that's something that Christensen will come back to often. He'll talk about how incumbents will go and listen to their existing customers, but the customers will say, this doesn't function to my needs. You're focused on desktop PC, and this doesn't suit my needs. It's too small of megabytes, too small of storage. So eventually, they will take this 3.5-inch and Christensen said, Seagate's marketers drew up pessimistic sales forecasts. They expected lower profit margins. And then once the executives see that there's not a big market, their existing customers don't want it, the profit margins are lower, they naturally are going to reject the project or scrape the product to invest in and favor their core product, the 5.25-inch disk drive for their core desktop PC. We'll see how Seagate, they're one of the first people to make the 3.5-inch, which was the eventual disk drive that fit the needs of the laptop. It was this new paradigm shift, and the laptop needed 
a smaller disk drive with that good capacity. And then eventually, that disk drive is able to move up market. These disruptive innovations, at first, they have worse capacity, but over time, they could accelerate at a faster rate because they're newer. So this is one of our first realizations we can learn from Seagate in the disk drive market. It's that incumbents will listen very closely to their customers, but the problem with disruptive technologies is that their customers are simply not the right market for this product, especially in the early days when the product has this very low capacity. So this is how he described this whole situation. He said, in response to lukewarm reviews from customers, Seagate's program manager lowered his 3.5-inch sales estimates and the firm's executives canceled the program. Their reasoning? The markets for 5.25-inch products were larger, and the sales generated by spending the engineering effort on new 5.25-inch products would create greater revenues for the company than would efforts targeted at new 3.5-inch products. So we see with the Seagate example in the disk drive industry, it's not that managers are stupid and they can't see this revolution. He is describing how managers' decision-making in the incumbent businesses are usually rational. They're seeing this emerging market. They're saying, this is too small for us. Our existing customers don't want it. They're listening to their customers and their customers are saying, it doesn't fit our needs as a business. So you end up ignoring it, and then eventually that technology, the 3.5-inch that fit the laptop market, ends up getting competitive to the 5.25-inch, and eventually people are going to start preferring it over this. Now, we've seen this example play out in the modern day in the past 10-15 years as well. We spoke about on the chip war episode the dilemma that Intel was facing in the mid-2000s, in the mid to late 2000s. So that was around the time that mobile was starting to become this new paradigm in computing, the mobile phone, and I believe it was 2007 that the iPhone was released. And Intel, their core business was these high-performance x86 architecture computer chips, which were effective for mainly computers like laptops, desktop PCs, and servers. They benefited from the cloud boom. So they had these high-performance chips, and Apple, for the mobile phone, they needed very power-efficient chips. So they were valuing a different item than pure capacity. They were valuing power efficiency because if you're taking your phone around all day, you want to make sure that you have battery life to actually use it. You can't charge it like your laptop is plugged in while you're working all day. So Apple was looking for these power-efficient chips. Apple went to Intel and asked them if they could make these power-efficient mobile chips. But Intel turned down the business because they saw it and they said, this is lower margin. Our customers don't want this. They like our high-performance chips. And that caused them to fall behind to this really core disruptive innovation. We've clearly seen how big the mobile wave has gotten these phones, mobile phones now are basically supercomputers in our pockets. And now these chips that were originally really weak compared to the Intel high performance chips, the mobile chips are now starting to eat away at Intel's core PC market. We've seen in the past couple of years, Apple has replaced Intel 
who used to provide the chips for the MacBook and different Mac products, and they've replaced Intel with their own internally designed silicon. So we see this trend play out often. We're going to see many examples as we discuss this book, and it's very scary for managers of incumbent businesses because Christensen continues to make the point how managers are making the rational decision at the time. They're looking at their core business and seeing we have these strong profit margins. Our customers are telling us that this new technology with worse capacity, worse capabilities is not worthwhile for us. We're not going to buy that product. So you decide to just scrap the innovation. You say, this is not going to impact us. The problem is, eventually, that disruptive innovation may very well impact you as a business. So this is the first lesson that we've learned from the innovator's dilemma, how the managers are rational and they are listening too closely to their customers. Now, the next couple things that cause innovator's dilemma as well are the customer's values and the cost structures. So we've talked a bit about the customer's values, how they would reject these innovations based on capacity. And Christensen points to this as a core driver of failure in incumbent businesses. He says, the concept of the value network, the context within which a firm identifies and responds to customers' needs, solves problems, procures input, reacts to competitors, and strives for profit is central to this thesis. So he is discussing how businesses are going to look to their customers' needs and try to solve those problems. The issue with disruptive innovation is that new paradigm shifts are going to introduce new values in that value network. We saw with PCs, desktop PCs, they may value a very large storage capacity, for example, or even laptops may value storage capacity or speed, high performance. Whereas when you go to the mobile phone side of things, they may optimize for low power usage or smaller size because you don't want a massive phone in your pocket. So we can see how customers in different markets have different values and your job as a manager of one of these incumbent businesses is not to simply listen to your core customers in your main market where you have strong profit margins, but instead it's to find that niche market where this disruptive innovation can actually fit. If you're the incumbent leading Seagate with a 5.25 inch disk drive, and that is core for desktop PCs, you're starting to develop the 3.5. They were one of the first people to do that disk drive size. And you have to look for which market would benefit from smaller capacity, but more portability. This smaller drive, it's great for a computer that's portable. So which market would benefit from that? And then you could start to attack that market rather than listen to just your core existing customers who don't feel like it's a good fit in the existing market. The next big problem businesses face is the fundamental cost differences. Incumbents are oftentimes used to higher profit margins with their core businesses, and thus that makes them much less willing to go down market for the lower profit margins of disruptive innovation. So Christensen says, firms making eight-inch drives for the mini computer market, for example, had cost structures requiring gross margins of 40%. 
aggressively moving down market would have pitted them against foes who had honed their cost structures to make money at 25% gross margins. On the other hand, moving up market enabled them to take a relatively lower cost structure into a market that was accustomed to giving its supplier 60% gross margins. Which direction made sense? We're seeing how incumbents, they have these higher profit margins in their core businesses, their incumbent businesses, like a 40% margin, disruptive innovation since they're new and people are figuring out where the opportunity is, it may have a smaller margin at 25% margins. And that's where there's an issue that the incumbents simply can't lower their cost 15% overnight. They're carrying these higher costs with their business. And this reminds me a lot of something that Mark Leonard of Constellation Software said, he has this phrase, he says, hurdle rates are magnetic, which is basically if you expect and target higher IRRs for your investments, you will likely reach higher levels. If you set higher goals, you will likely reach those higher goals. I think you could apply this similar framework with if you target higher margins, you will accept higher costs. You are willing to take on 30% costs if you have 40% margins, but vice versa, it works as well. If you're a company, an emergent company that's tackling a disruptive innovation and you realize we're not going to have much room for high margins, this is a new industry and we're only going to have 25% gross margins, then you will fundamentally structure your business to have lower costs. And that gives these emergent companies an advantage against the incumbents because the incumbents have these structurally higher costs, whereas the emergent businesses have structurally lower costs. And those lower costs allow them to move up market. Christensen explains this. He says, in contrast to the unattractive margins and market size that established firms saw when eyeing the new emerging markets for simpler drives, the entrants saw the potential volumes and margins in the upscale high-performance markets above them as highly attractive. Customers in these established markets eventually embraced the new architectures they had rejected earlier because once their needs for capacity and speed were met, the new drive's smaller size and architectural simplicity made them cheaper, faster, and more reliable than the older architectures. He's hammering home this point here where emergent companies who tackle, they're the first movers, with the disruptive innovation, they have these structurally lower costs. And when they look up, they have 25% gross margins. They look up and they see, wow, our incumbent has 40%. Let's go after that market. It's much easier to move up market than it is for an incumbent to move down market. So this is the second key lesson that is causing innovators dilemma. We saw the first is listening too closely to your customers in your core business. And the second is that with your naturally higher profit margins in your core business, you likely have those naturally higher structural costs. As Mark Leonard says, hurdle rates are magnetic. So he explained this using an example from the steel industry. At first, there were integrated steel mills, and there was this invention called mini mills, which were a fraction of the development costs of the large integrated steel mills and their per unit production costs was cheaper. So these mini mills served as the disruptive innovation 
two integrated steel mills because they were cheaper, but in the beginning, their capacity was worse. They could only really produce this initial scrap metal. It really was low value chain focus. And emergent companies, they realized that if they could target a market that will value scrap metal, that doesn't really care about the appearance, then they may be able to build a business off of this disruptive innovation and eventually move up market. And that original market they found was the rebar market for construction. It is this reinforcing metal that's put into buildings and no one ends up really seeing the rebar. So it doesn't matter that it looks like scrap metal, it's ugly, but eventually they're able to move up. The mini mills got more advanced and moved up into the integrated steel mill territory. Christensen wrote, whereas the down market rebar territory they seized had looked singularly unattractive to their integrated competitors, the mini mills view up market showed that opportunities for greater profits and expanded sales were all above them. With such incentive, they worked to improve the metallurgical quality and consistency of their products and invested in equipment to make larger shapes. So we're seeing this core lesson he's hammering home with the mini mill versus steel integrated mill model. He's talking about it had a lower cost, fundamentally lower cost. So it was this disruptive innovation in the cost differences of the business. It was worse capacity at first, initial scrap metal, but over time they improved their quality so they could go above and beyond the initial rebar market. Christensen says, what matters instead is whether the disruptive technology is improving from below along the trajectory that will ultimately intersect with what the market needs. So we're seeing here, the mini mills were able to move up market with these lower costs and their new slab casting method, what was called thin slab casting method, to take over the steel market because their pace of growth was faster. So that's something really important we want to pay attention to when we see this disruptive innovations. We want to see what is the pace of improvement with the disruptive innovation because although the capacity could look very poor compared to the incumbent at first, we see this vast difference with the mini mills, scrap metal and rebar versus integrated mills making sheet metal for cars. But we see if the pace of innovation is fast enough, then eventually those markets and capacities will cross and customers may choose the newer innovation because of those other metrics. It may be cheaper, it may be simpler, it may be more convenient. So we're hammering home the second lesson. Companies have fundamental cost differences, incumbents versus emergent disruptors, and we need to pay attention to the pace of improvement in the disruptive innovation market. I think we can notice at this point how a lot of the management's decision in incumbent businesses are rational, and we could point to part of the issue as the manager's incentives behind their decision-making. So Christensen said, rational managers, as we shall see, can rarely build a cogent case for entering small, poorly defined low-end markets that offer only lower profitability. So this is a very clear example. Managers' incentives prevent them from moving down market into these small disruptive markets. 
We're already seeing the margins are lower than their existing business. The market is not fully defined yet. It's a small market. The cost structure is lower. So fundamentally, you may have too high of cost structures. And these mini managers at incumbent firms, they don't want to put their career and their track record on the line for a failed product. It makes complete sense. The managers are being rational, but their incentives are preventing them from moving down market into the disruptive innovation. Now, I want to cover another interesting example that we see this disruptive innovation. He talks about it in the book. It is in the discount retailing space. So discount retailing was a disruptive innovation to the old department stores like Sears and Woolworth. So those department stores, they were used to having these higher product markups and they had salespeople to show around inventory, give you recommendations. And these new discounting retailers came into the scene like Walmart and Costco, and they chose a completely different model. They had no salespeople. They carried very popular items, the highest selling items, and they did it at lower markups. They brought down their gross margins. And Christensen explains how this as well can be a big disruptive innovation. This isn't a technology disruptive innovation, but even on the cost basis and business model basis, this is a core disruptive innovation. Traditional department stores historically marked merchandise up by 40% and turned their inventory over four times in a year. That is, they earned 40% on the amount they invested in inventory four times during the year for a total return on inventory investment of 160%. Discount retailers earned a return on inventory investment similar to that of department stores, but through a different model, low gross margins and high inventory turns. And he gives this example, department stores like Sears or Macy's, they had these gross margins of 40%. They sold, let's say, the same shirt four times in a year. They have this inventory turn of four times. So their return on inventory investment is 160%. A discount retailer like Walmart, for example, would take a 20% gross margin. So you're undercutting the department store, but you're going to sell that item eight times in a year. So you're still getting the 160% return, but you're just doing it through a different formula. You're going towards low gross margins and high inventory turns. This reminds me strongly of very important investing framework that Michael Mobison talks about is cost leadership versus differentiation. How many commodity businesses, like I would probably say in many cases, department retailing stores, in some ways it's a commodity business, you're selling a lot of the similar clothing and groceries, different items, they will eventually go towards the cost leader. So cost leadership is the lowest price wins. And we see discount retailers, they took advantage of this big undercutting of gross margins. They realized they could make back the money with inventory turns, but they took advantage of, we're going to be the lowest cost provider. On the other side of cost leadership is differentiation. Differentiation you can have higher margins and low turns, so you could flip that return on investment equation, but it typically happens in luxury businesses or companies with brand strength or switching costs. So the real challenge here was the retailing chains, 
they didn't have high differentiation. A company like Tiffany's, they follow more of this differentiation model. They have very high margins because they're a luxury company, but they have low turns. They're not going to sell that diamond ring five times throughout the year. They may sell it one time throughout the year, but they have their strong brand and that enables them to get high margins and that is their differentiator. On the other hand, discount retailers didn't have a core differentiator, but their big insight, the disruptive innovation in this case was we're going to be the cost leader. We're going to be the lowest common denominator in costs and we're going to use a new formula, low gross margins, high inventory turns. So that is oftentimes the return on investment formula that we see with cost leadership companies, whereas differentiation companies will have higher margins and lower turns. This competitive approach of trying to erode the margins of a core business, an incumbent business, is oftentimes also thought as as counter-positioning. So Christensen describes this. He says, the reason disruptive technologies and new distribution channels frequently go hand in hand is in fact an economic one. Retailers and distributors tend to have very clear formulas for making money. As the histories of Kriege and Woolworth in chapter four showed, some make money by selling low volumes of big ticket products at high margins. Others make money by selling large volumes at razor-thin margins that cover minimal operating overheads. Still, others make money servicing products already sold. Just as disruptive technologies don't fit the models of established firms for improving profits, they often don't fit the models of their distributors either. So we saw in discount retailing, this was an example of counter-positioning and the fundamental cost difference. They went in, companies like Walmart and Costco, realized that they could do this bare bones approach, minimal operating overhead and sell things at a much lower gross margin. I think Costco's margin is typically only 14, 15%. They make their money on the membership instead. And on the other hand, you have differentiation. Those are like luxury businesses that are selling low volumes of big ticket items. The final cause of this innovator's dilemma is that growth burdens incumbents. Christensen wrote, Unfortunately, companies that become large and successful find that maintaining growth becomes progressively more difficult. The math is simple. A $40 million company that needs to grow profitably at 20% to sustain its stock price and organizational vitality needs an additional $8 million in revenues the first year. million the following year, and so on. A $400 million company with a 20% targeted growth rate needs new business worth $80 million in the first year, $96 million in the next, and so on. And a $4 billion company with a 20% growth goal needs to find $800 million, $960 million, and so on in each successive year. So he is describing these early tech markets are too small for the incumbents because it doesn't satisfy their growth needs. This need for massive growth is burdening the incumbent companies. He goes on to say, because growing companies need to add increasingly large chunks of new revenue each year just to maintain their desired rate of growth, it becomes less and less possible that small markets can be viable as vehicles 
through which to find these chunks of revenue. So incumbents need to add increasingly large chunks of revenue each year. The new small markets, which are home of these disruptive innovations, don't fit their markets. And he actually made another point very similar to Michael Mobison's book, Expectations Investing, that we've spoken about a little bit throughout the podcast. It's an excellent finance book. But Christensen references a real core takeaway from that book as well in relation to companies' growth and their stock price. He says, if a company's current share price is predicated on a consensus growth forecast of 20% and the market's consensus for growth is subsequently revised downward to 15% growth, then the company's share price will likely fall, even though revenues and earnings will still be growing at a healthy rate. And this, I just wanted to re-emphasize again, especially after some of the past financial euphoria episodes, where we often see we're getting punished in the stock market, not because the best companies, the incumbents, suddenly go from highly profitable to unprofitable. It's not that they drop off that far, they go to unprofitability, but these adjustments to the expectations, to the consensus forecast of growth, does greatly impact the stock price. The future stock prices are based on these expectations that the general market has of the business's performance. So we could get punished in the stock market when the high growers of today start to gain these super high future growth expectations. And then unfortunately, they're not able to live up to those high growth expectations, or it may be high margin expectations, for example. So that's a really important point when we're thinking about stock investing, Michael Mobison's idea of expectations investing. It's that a lot of the business's value is placed on the consensus forecasts around growth, around margins, around reinvestment, for example. And Christensen is highlighting this point as well. He's not only saying that incumbents have huge growth burdens, they need to keep up their high growth, but if they don't keep it up, their stock price is going to suffer tremendously. So that is even further incentive for them not to pursue these small disruptive technology markets because they need to satisfy these high levels of growth. Otherwise, their shareholders are going to be unhappy and employees are going to lose a lot of the value they have in the business. Christensen summarizes this lesson by saying, there are enormous returns and significant first mover advantages associated with early entry into the emerging markets in which disruptive technologies are initially used. Successful innovators encounter a significant dilemma in their pursuit of such leadership. Growth-oriented companies face the problem that small markets don't solve the near-term growth needs of large companies. The markets whose emergence is enabled by disruptive technologies all began as small ones. So we've now wrapped up, I would say, the three core causes of innovators' dilemma. And we saw oftentimes managers are being rational. They're doing the right thing in their seat. They're listening to customers. They're pursuing growth because the company's stock price is predicated on its consensus growth estimates and they're pursuing high margins and thus have high cost structures to match those. So these are the core reasons that are driving this innovator's dilemma. 
And now Christensen is going to take us through what are some tools that businesses, incumbents can use to mitigate the effects of the innovator's dilemma. How can you avoid this if you're in the seat of a manager or as a CEO of one of these incumbent businesses? The first move executives must make is handling the management incentives. As Charlie Munger likes to say, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. We're seeing here, managers have these rational incentives to not pursue disruptive technologies. So executives have to change these incentives in a different manner that they can actually pursue these disruptive technologies. Christensen describes how many executives will quote unquote, wait until the market is large enough to be interesting before joining that market, pursuing it, or letting their internal growth needs get in the way. They have this massive need for large chunks of new revenue, but he prescribes them instead to tackle these disruptive innovations through independent projects. So he said, this can be done either by spinning out an independent organization or by acquiring an appropriately small company. Basically, these new companies need the autonomy and you could own 80% of the new business, the independent business, but it needs the autonomy to not suffer compared to the core incumbent business. You can't always compare it to the incumbent business and have managers whose incentives are to optimize for the incumbent business. You need a completely separate business or a spin-out business. He went on to say how Johnson & Johnson's strategy is to launch products of disruptive technologies through very small companies acquired for that purpose. So he's describing how Johnson & Johnson has been able to stay on the cutting edge for so many years with different types of drugs and immunotherapies because they will buy small companies, acquire them, in that disruptive technology mold, they're tackling a new innovation in the medical space or in the pharmacology space, and they'll give them the autonomy to pursue those new innovations without needing to measure up to the high margins or to the manager's incentives of their older core business. He goes on to describe another example with a disk drive company. We've talked about disk drives a lot on this episode, and he uses that as his through-line industry for all the examples across the book. But he describes this company, Quantum, which was one of the leading makers of the 8-inch disk drive that was for the mini-computers. And at the time, a team had left Quantum, the incumbent business, to work on 3.5-inch disk drives, the disk drives that would be perfect for laptops. And over time, that small breakout company, that spin-out, eventually became the only valuable part of Quantum. So he says, Quantum's executives financed and retained 80% ownership of this spin-off venture called Plus Development Corporation and set the company up in different facilities. It was a completely self-sufficient organization with its own executive staff and all of the functional capabilities required in an independent company. Plus was extremely successful. So we saw maybe it was a decade later that Plus contributed almost all of the market value of Quantum because eventually the 8-inch drive was not relevant anymore and Plus's strong business around the 3.5-inch drive was successful. And they were able to get there because they were given 
this autonomy separate from the incumbent financial capabilities, the margins, the cost structures of the incumbent business, and really separate from the incentives. You are separating the incentives. And he harps on this point how companies, incumbents, who want to tackle disruptive technologies need to really separate the incentives through setting up the team in a completely different location or just spinning off an individual, independent, new company with its own management team and with its own incentives in place, not encumbered by the core business's profitability and the core business's incentives. He said, those who made the day-to-day resource allocation decisions in the company never saw the sense in investing the necessary money, time, and energy in low-margin products that their customers didn't want. So that is the core manager's incentive flaw that we're seeing in the innovator's dilemma with these incumbent businesses. And Christensen is describing this form of spin-outs, either spinning out where it's a completely independent company and you own a majority stake of, or simply spinning out a new facility, new location, new team, as separate as you can make it with as much autonomy will do much better for that company in not suffering from this innovator's dilemma. They won't be beholden to the old company's profitability and many of the manager's incentives around company decision-making. I think an interesting example that's playing out right now, a question of innovator's dilemma, is in the AI space with ChatGPT versus Google. A lot of people are saying OpenAI and their models, ChatGPT, is threatening Google's core search business and the advertising business behind search. Now, I think this is a really interesting space to follow. You can listen to the AI superpowers episode if you want to learn a little bit more about this space, but very hard to make a prediction. Christensen writes how with disruptive technologies, it's almost impossible to predict who will be the core beneficiary, who will be the winner. Typically, it is the emergent companies if the incumbent company suffers from a lot of these causes that we've already discussed. But I think one thing we could point out that's interesting in Google's case is that Google made the decision to acquire DeepMind in 2014. So they acquired this leading AI company and they have some of the best tech in AI, although they don't release it publicly like OpenAI, they do have some of the best tech in AI. They have the BERT model and Palm model, and they were really one of the original creators of the Transformers architecture, which powers a lot of the large language models today. So Google is very advanced on the technology side, but we've already seen the business model side, the counter positioning and the management incentives behind Innovator's Dilemma can cause a company to fail even though they have the technological wherewithal. I think an interesting counterpoint to this as we watch this space evolve is that Google has made this active decision to keep DeepMind, their really deep tech AI company, as an independent company and allows them to keep innovating. It's technically under Google's roof, but In many ways, it is not beholden to Google's management processes. It's basically a separate division within the company. And maybe we'll see them be able to create these innovations in AI without suffering from the innovator's dilemma. 
This, I, I really don't know. It's very early space. It's developing. I think all of us are looking at it with this curious lens, but this is something to watch. This modern day example that's playing out in front of our eyes of potentially innovators dilemma. We're seeing OpenAI, ChatGPT coming in with new technologies, these AI methods that could improve language generation and search and translation and image generation, etc. And Google has this search business that have very strong margins under the advertising business model. So we could see this undercutting or we could see Google defend its, its business model through potentially keeping DeepMind as a separate individual and autonomous organization. I think that will be interesting to follow. And we could just go back to the point that Christensen makes where he's saying spinning out an independent organization or acquiring an appropriately small company is this core method to avoid innovators' dilemma as an incumbent. So we're seeing the first method is spinouts. Let's watch the AI race between OpenAI and Google search business. Very interesting as it develops. And he gives these great examples behind Quantum with their plus investment, which ends up saving the company. The next thing he really points out is how these incumbents, when they're approaching these new undefined markets for the disruptive technology, they need to go into this new small market and really plan for failure, test out and iterate different solutions before betting a ton of resources towards a particular product or towards a particular marketing plan. And this whole framework, I think it's really interesting because it reminds me of Jeff Bezos and his approach at Amazon. He really instilled a culture at Amazon where people are expected to fail repeatedly. The company is going to make many different investments and they're expected to fail repeatedly. The benefit of this is he has set this expectation that failure is okay and trial and error is mandatory at the company. You have to try different business lines and try new products to see if it will add value to Amazon. And that in some ways has removed a lot of the poor management incentives that most incumbent businesses suffer from. In Amazon, managers are expected to iterate and try new products and create new business lines. And that has allowed them to explore new opportunities in these emerging disruptive markets as they unveil themselves. And Bezos, he makes this great analogy to emphasize why it's so important to take these repetitive bets, even though you're gonna fail often. He says, we all know that if you swing for the fences, you're going to strike out a lot, but you're also going to hit some home runs. The difference between baseball and business, however, is that baseball has a truncated outcome distribution. When you swing, no matter how well you connect with the ball, the most runs you could get is four. In business, every once in a while, when you step up to the plate, you could score a thousand runs. So he's saying businesses should be okay with failing and they should experiment more when there are these natural asymmetric outcomes, when you could have this thousand to one outcome, like for them, AWS, their cloud product, really defined this new disruptive market. And that's despite they created what was called the Fire Phone. This was a big failure that Bezos likes to write about in many of his letters. And it's something that he honestly wears on his sleeve as, as like a badge of honor 
because he's showing how you're expected to fail. I'm going to make these bets that fail like the fire phone. Many of them will fail, if anything. But even if a couple of them ends up becoming this disruptive innovation or the market over time grows into this new behemoth market like cloud, then you're going to do very well. And Christensen was hammering home a very similar point. He was saying these incumbent businesses have to set a culture where failure is expected. And as you're approaching new markets, you want to constantly be iterating. So we'll continue with what Christensen calls basically the product life cycle of these disruptive innovations. And he talks about how companies and customers will originally look at the functionality, the capabilities of this technology, and they'll deem that disruptive technologies are not good enough for their needs. But over time, as that inflection point is hit, as the disruptive technology is good enough to the capabilities of a sustaining technology, then customers start looking at new dimensions. They start looking at reliability and then convenience and then price. So Christensen writes, a product becomes a commodity within a specific market segment when the repeated changes in the basis of competition, as described above, completely play themselves out. That is when market needs on each attribute or dimension of performance have been fully satisfied by more than one available product. Those stupid guys are just treating our product like it was a commodity. Can't they see how much better our product is than the competitions? It may, in fact, be the case that the product offerings of competitors in a market continue to be differentiated from each other. But differentiation loses its meaning when the features and functionality have exceeded the market's demands. Buyers will look at functionality first, at the capabilities of the technology, but over time, the disruptive technology may match those capabilities or the sustaining technology may exceed what the market actually needs, what it demands. It becomes too complicated and customers then instead will start looking at new vectors of value. They will start looking at the reliability of a product, the convenience of the product, the price. The disruptive tech is usually cheaper as it's establishing itself. So he uses a great example of how companies with this performance oversupply can be attacked from below by the disruptive technologies. Once hydraulically powered excavators had the strength to handle buckets of two to four cubic yards of earth, surpassing the performance demanded in mainstream markets, contractors rapidly switched to these products, even though the cable actuated machines were capable of moving even more earth per scoop. So this we're seeing, the market mainly needed two to four cubic yards of excavation and cable was the sustaining innovation. That was what incumbents are based on. But now hydraulics was the new innovation. It was worse at first. And eventually the performance over supply gap was shrunken down to exactly what the mainstream market needs. And once that was the case, once the mainstream market was able to buy hydraulically powered excavators that could do two to four cubic yards, they stopped looking at pure how many cubic yards of earth can you handle? And instead, they started looking at reliability or convenience. Hydraulics were safer and they were more reliable and they required much less maintenance than the cable actuated machines. So this is a really important point for us to understand. It's how the vectors of performance 
as the disruptive innovation is getting better and reducing that gap of skill set in the mainstream market, the vectors of performance will go from original functionality capability that disruptive tech fails on initially to reliability and then convenience and then price. He described this example play out in full. I thought this was an amazing example with Intuit as they were capturing the small and medium business accounting software market. There was this performance oversupply gap. The incumbents were providing sustaining technologies that were exceeding what the market demanded. It was too complex for what the market needed. And Intuit saw this opportunity. Disruptive tech may be worse at first, but it's going to quickly reach the market's needs. And then the market will prefer the reliability and convenience of Intuit. So he said, First, previously available small business accounting packages had been created under the close guidance of certified public accountants and required users to have a basic knowledge of accounting, debits and credits, assets and liabilities, and so on, and to make every journal entry twice, thus providing an audit trail for each transaction. Second, most existing packages offered a comprehensive and sophisticated array of reports and analysis, an array that grew ever more complicated and specialized with each new release as developers sought to differentiate their products by offering greater functionality. And third, 85% of all companies in the United States were too small to employ an accountant. The books were kept by the proprietors or by family members who had no need for or understanding of most of the entries and reports available from mainstream accounting software. We're seeing overshooting, exceeding the market's demands. To continue, they did not know what an audit trail was, let alone sense a need to use one. Scott Cook, into its founder, surmised that most of these small companies were run by proprietors who relied more on their intuition and direct knowledge of the business than on the information contained in accounting reports. In other words, Cook decided that the makers of accounting softwares for small businesses had overshot the functionality required by that market, thus creating an opportunity for a disruptive software technology that provided adequate, not superior functionality and was simple and more convenient to use. Intuit's disruptive QuickBooks changed the basis of product competition from functionality to convenience and captured 70% of its market within two years of its introduction. This is such a great example to understand this performance oversupply gap and how the disruptive companies, the disruptive emergent businesses, will come underneath the sustaining innovations and they will offer a product that functionality-wise, it may not be advanced as the existing software, but the existing software may end up exceeding what the market actually demands. And thus, people will switch from pure functionality, I don't need this super complex accounting software. Instead, they'll start saying, I need an accounting software that could make my three books for tax season and it could keep track of how my business is performing throughout the year, but I don't have a CPA knowledge. I don't want to understand all the backend things that are going on with my accounting software. I just care about simplicity and convenience. So we saw Intuit changed the basis of product competition from functionality to convenience 
and that allowed them to capture 70% of the market in just two years after being introduced. As we got to the end of the book, Christensen wanted to take all his lessons from the innovator's dilemma and disruptive innovation and put it into one case study looking forward. So basically this case study, it's going to be a really, really interesting case study, is how Christensen would handle EVs, electric vehicles, as an auto executive in 1997. So we're going to see many of the ways he describes he would handle this disruptive technology if he were in the shoes of an auto executive back then. And there's going to be some mind-blowing stats that he says in this looking forward manner. So to start off, he was hypothesizing what questions he would ask to judge these electric vehicles if they're even a disruptive innovation. He first realized and thought it was a disruptive innovation because at the time, EVs really didn't meet the needs of the mainstream market. He said, a minimum cruising range, that is the distance that could be driven without refueling of about 125 to 250 miles for the average car, most electric vehicles only offer a minimum cruising range of 50 to 80 miles. Similarly, drivers seem to require cars that accelerate from 0 to 60 miles per hour in less than 10 seconds, necessary primarily to merge safely into high-speed traffic from freeway entrance ramps. Most electric vehicles take nearly 20 seconds to get there. And finally, buyers in the mainstream market demand a wide array of options, but it would be impossible for electric vehicle manufacturers to offer a similar variety within the small initial unit volumes that will characterize that business. According to almost any definition of functionality used, the electric vehicle will be deficient compared to a gasoline-powered car. So here he's really setting the stage that electric vehicles clearly do not satisfy the mainstream market of auto companies today. It is very deficient on cruising range. It is very slow on zero to 60 speed. It won't have optionality for customers to choose from. So it clearly doesn't satisfy the main market of auto companies today. But then he was looking at, can the growth in capabilities over time of these EVs make it disruptive in the future? Will it intersect eventually? So when he was thinking about that, he rationed that traffic laws impose a limit on the usefulness of ever more powerful cars. And demographic, economic, and geographic considerations limit the increase in commuting miles for the average driver to less than 1% per year. At the same time, the performance of electric vehicles is improving at a faster rate between 2 to 4% per year, suggesting that sustaining technological advances might indeed carry electric vehicles from their position today, where they cannot compete in mainstream markets, to a position in the future where they might. So we're seeing his point emphasize electric vehicles are increasing at a faster rate of improvement, so eventually they will hit the mainstream market. Whereas the traditional auto cars and gas-powered cars, they're not able to advance nearly as quickly because there's these natural limits in place, these industry limits in place. With these two points, he is setting the stage. Not only are EVs not suited for the mainstream market today, which is necessary for disruptive innovation, but it does have 
a pace of progress that means eventually it should reach that inflection point. And this next point really blew my mind. He was predicting, he was saying, if I'm the auto executive, how would I position my company to be in the right place while still benefiting from the sustaining technology today, the gas-powered cars today? So he was tracking this rate of improvement and he goes on to predict when EVs will break into the mainstream, how the company should be positioned for that. If present rates of improvement continue, however, we would expect the cruising range of electric cars, for example, to intersect with the average range demanded in the mainstream market by 2015, and electric vehicle acceleration to intersect with mainstream demands by 2020. If we look back, 2020 was really this huge breakout year for Tesla. Combine that with the pandemic, there are multiple different reasons, but it was this breakout year for Tesla. And I think 2014, 2015 was when EVs started becoming a comparable technology. It was when the range was comparable to gas-powered, and it really became mainstream in 2020 or maybe up until 2021. That's when we've started to see all the other auto execs start to jump on the bandwagon and say, now we do need to pursue this EV technology. Now we do have to make EV cars a priority. So this was a prediction he made in 1997. And he's he basically called it exactly how it played out over the next 25 years. So to circle back to how he was thinking about this back then, if he was the auto executive, He's clearly determined it is a disruptive technology, doesn't suit the market today, the mainstream market today, but it should intersect eventually in the 2015 to 2020 period. And he was realizing that most auto executives will write off electric vehicles, write off as in they're not going to pay attention to them because it doesn't meet the demands of their customers that day. We remember they listen too closely to their customers despite the disruptive nature. Eventually, there's that inflection point and the capabilities switch from functionality to reliability or convenience. And he describes how these EV companies, if he was an auto executive, he would focus instead on the niche markets that are suitable today for this type of business, this lower cruising range and slower zero to 60 type of business. When he was hypothesizing, he gave this really interesting example of high school students. He said, one of my students has suggested that the parents of high school students who buy their children cars for basic transportation to and from school, friends' homes, and school events might constitute a fertile market for electric vehicles. Given the option, these parents might see the product simplicity, slow acceleration, and limited driving range of electric vehicles as very desirable attributes for their teenagers' cars, especially if they're styled with teenagers in mind. So as an auto executive, Christensen would want to focus on what is the niche suitable market for the capabilities of this disruptive innovation today. I know that it's going to increase at a fast pace and get better over time, we could eventually move up market, but I need to find the market that suits the capabilities today. I can't go to my core existing customers or mainstream customers because obviously they're going to compare it on this huge gap 
of performance and functionality, we saw that performance gap, they're going to compare the gap of cruising range and speed, and they're going to say, there's no reason for me to buy an EV today. But if you're able to find this niche market like high school students, then you could build a small business as the market of the entire disruptive innovation starts to grow over time. So Christensen talks about how as the battery technology improves, batteries enable the longer ranges and electric cars match the overall capabilities or functionality performance of gas powered cars, we're going to see a shift in customers, how they value each car. So he said, we can safely predict that the basis of product competition and customer choice will shift away from these measures of functionality toward other attributes, such as reliability and convenience. And this, in some ways, we have seen it play out with Tesla taking advantage of the EV market. They benefit from this seamless software integration and a new type of D2C sales model. They're the own distributors of the electric vehicles. So those two tools have helped it gain this rapid market share as the capabilities and the battery technology has matched the gas-powered cars. Now people, when they're comparing cars, they may look at a Tesla versus a more performant car, same price, but more performant car, and they may think it's more convenient to buy a Tesla with its software upgrades or with the reliability of just using a Tesla app and having my payment plan through Tesla. Christensen closes off his experiment, his case study of the electric vehicle market by pointing out how incumbents will join the electric vehicle party once it does meet the capabilities of the mainstream market. So he called that 2020 is when that intersection is going to happen. And that was pretty accurate, whether you want to say 2020 or 2021. And we saw in the news that year, almost every company was putting out new reports of the next electric vehicle they're going to build. The Ford F-150 is going to be electric, uh, electric Hummer. All these companies that were even proud of their gas-powered routes, now the incumbents are willing to join the electric party. His whole point throughout this book is that is where Innovator's Dilemma takes hold in disruptive innovations. They look weak at first. They don't have matching capabilities to the sustaining innovation, but you have to ignore your core customers and you have to find this new niche market like he thought of with the high school students that you could build a business on today. And then you could spin out an independent organization or like Tesla, it's a completely new company compared to the legacy auto companies to tackle this disruptive innovation and to be the real winner behind it. So we'll close off with some, some final thoughts from Christensen on the thesis of Innovator's Dilemma. The primary thesis of Innovator's Dilemma is that the management practices that allow companies to be leaders in mainstream markets are the same practices that cause them to miss the opportunities offered by disruptive technologies. Like we said, managers are making the rational decision, but there's these natural, poor incentives in place. Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And companies end up suffering from killing their initial disruptive technology ideas, like Seagate making 
one of the first 3.5 inch disk drives because either it doesn't suit their mainstream customers, they listen too closely to their core customers, or it's the higher margins and thus higher cost structures, or it's their vast need for growth, this burden of growth, and they don't think that tackling the small market, this small but quickly growing disruptive market, will make enough of a dent in their growth projections. So these are the three traits that really cause companies to suffer from the innovator's dilemma, and it all comes back to the rational choices of poor management incentives in incumbent businesses. To avoid the innovator's dilemma, companies must, as Christensen said, one, give responsibility for disruptive technologies to organizations whose customers need them so that resources will flow to them, two, set up a separate organization small enough to get excited by small gains, again, these spin-outs or autonomy, three, plan for failure. Don't bet all your resources on being right the first time. Think of your initial efforts at commercializing a disruptive technology as learning opportunities. Make revisions as you gather data. Back to Bezos and plan to fail repeatedly. Fail and iterate asymmetric outcomes are worthwhile. Now four, and the final lesson to avoid innovators' dilemma from Christensen, don't count on breakthroughs. Move ahead early and find the market for the current attributes of the technology. You will find it outside the current mainstream market. You will also find that attributes that make disruptive technologies unattractive to mainstream markets are the attributes on which the new markets will be built. That is a great way to close off this amazing book, Innovator's Dilemma. Many, many key lessons, I think both strategy and management lessons. And it's something as managers of incumbent businesses or people who are starting new emergent businesses taking advantage of these disruptive innovations, it's something to always keep in mind. What is causing the innovator's dilemma? What are these incentives in place and these high cost structures, need for growth, or listening too closely to your customers? And how can you avoid it in real time if you're a manager of an incumbent business? Are you going to change the entire culture, which is typically hard? Are you going to set in place a culture early on that is planned for failure like Amazon and you're willing to make repeated bets? Or are you going to create these separate spin-off organizations, independent organizations to tackle that one problem, that one disruptive technology unencumbered by the core business. I hope you guys have learned a lot from this episode. I certainly have from reading the book. I recommend you check out the book and thanks again for listening.